So this is the 20th episode in this little history project that we are undertaking, my effort to help you fill in the gap between the Apostle Paul and Billy Graham. Uh, I am motivated by a belief that uh, there's a whole lot that has happened in the last 2,000 years that is, uh, that is important. Uh, I think we've got to fill in some of these heroes. We've got to understand some of the forces and factors that are shaping our life. Uh, I think it's it's imperative that we study history because, um, to quote, to steal, I guess, from Alan Jacobs, uh, we need that personal density. Uh, we need to be less temporally bound to be able to understand our world and the things that are shaping us and the things that we believe that people didn't believe 50 years ago and perhaps won't believe 50 years from now. So... Um, I'm not promising that this podcast is going to completely change your world, but I am hoping, again, to use Jacob's term, that it helps you add some personal density. So to that end, we have been looking, you're doing this historic overview of the 100 most important people, ideas, and events of the last 2,000 years in the faith. And uh, today, as we ramp up, let me just pause and say, uh, I am aware that you fall into uh, two camps here. Uh, there are some that I hear, a hundred lectures? Are you crazy? I mean, do you seriously think you're going to hold my attention for a hundred history lectures? There is no conceivable way. It's moving too slow. I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't do this with you. At the same time, there are others that say, a hundred lectures? Are you serious? You think you're going to summarize the Christian world in a hundred forty-minute lectures? What kind of fool's errand are you on? <laughs> so, let me say whether you're in the camp that says a hundred is way too many or a hundred is not nearly enough. I get it. I'm there with you and um, struggling right alongside you. Um, so, in the previous twenty lectures, just by way of a, the quickest uh, update, the previous. 19 lectures fall into six quick categories. Initially, we looked at some events that sort of overlap with the early church, overlap with what is covered in the New Testament. So the, uh, the fire that burned Rome, and then uh, the fall of Jerusalem. And then in sections 2, 3, and 4, they, they pivoted around Nicaea, the Nicaean uh, Council. So the first, um, the, I gave two lectures on the Antinician Fathers, so Justin Martyr, uh, the apologist, and then Polycarp, uh, a bishop and a martyr. Uh, and then we looked at the Council of Nicaea itself. I did a lecture on Constantine and then one on the Arian controversy, which sort of animated uh, that council. And then I did a few in the post-Nicene era. And so we looked at some of the post-Nicene church fathers, Athanasius and Jerome and the, the, the big guy of all, uh, Augustine. And then I did, uh, I, the fifth section, I did a, a couple of loose ends. We looked at the Apostles' Creed and the formation of the New Testament canon. And then we entered the sixth section where I've been looking at a person. And uh, in addition to a person, sort of looking at the big idea or sort of the movement that they launched. So uh, this started uh, initially uh, with, uh, this started initially with St. Patrick and uh, the, I gave an overview of Western civilization. The second lecture was on um, St. Benedict and the rise of the monastic movement. 
Uh, the third was Gregory the Great, and this was sort of the spark of, of an opportunity to talk a little bit about the emergence of the Roman Catholic Church. The fourth was Columba, and we looked at the history of missions. Last week, it was Muhammad and the rise of Islam. And uh, today, we're going to look at Bede, or uh, the Venerable Bede, as he is almost always referred to. And um, I guess if you're going to have a nickname that is going to be known 1,200 years later by people, uh, Venerable is as good as it's going to get, good as it's likely to get. He's a 7th century British Benedictine monk and a scholar. And uh, he gives us a, an opportunity to pivot and to talk about the importance of the life of the mind and how uh, a commitment to thinking sort of animates the Christian church and how, in turn, Christian thinking animates Western civilization. So, Bede, born in 672 or perhaps 673, we're not certain, uh, in the kingdom of Northumbria. So think Great Britain. Uh, he moves into a monastery at the age of seven, which is not all that unusual. It, uh, people of wealth, noble people would sometimes um, give a son to the church. This suggests that he's coming out of money or he's coming out of uh, some, some status. Um, we know that uh, he survives uh, the plague that moves to that area and claims a lot of people. We also know uh, that at some point he moves from one monastery, sort of twin monasteries that he's at. They've got two buildings. At one point, he moves from one to the other. Uh, and with the exception of a couple other small trips, that seems to be about uh, the, the, the gist of his travels. Uh, at 30, he's ordained to the priesthood, uh, and he doesn't advance beyond that. He is content, best we can tell, to remain a simple priest, not to be a, you know, a bishop or an abbot or an archbishop or you know, move up the church hierarchy. He likes to be a simple priest, uh, a, a preacher occasionally, but mostly a scholar. He lives a quiet life as a scholar, and from this uh, library monastery where he is uh, ensconced, he is going to gain national, even international fame. Um, Bede is noted for a number of works. He writes a number of biblical commentaries. Uh, he does some extensive work on the dating of Easter. He uh, creates the premier Latin translation of the, the Bible that is still used by the Roman Catholic Church today. Uh, he is the one who either, some say he's the guy who came up with the idea, others say no, he didn't, he just popularized it, but the whole uh, AD, the Anno Domini uh, that, that dates everything starting with Christ. So we've got BC before Christ or in the last 20 years, BCE, before the Common Era, from those who don't want to tie history to Jesus. Uh, but then you also have AD. Uh, it's a Latin phrase, and it means uh, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. And so he's the one that puts this forward. But <laughs> we would not be talking about any of that had he not also written uh, a book, The Ecclesiastical History of the English People which is not only the first history of the English people, it's the first time the English people are referred to as the English people. So they were called the Anglo-Saxons, and they were divided among a number of kingdoms that were often fighting amongst each other. Uh, 
Bede is the guy that sort of sees that they are all one people, uh, talks about them as the angles from which we get the, we're eventually going to see that translated into the term English. Uh, and he writes this book, which is revered as the premier work of scholarship for a couple hundred years. And uh, I doubt that you've read it, but you could because uh, it has never gone out of print. So uh, the accolades for Bede are, are extensive. Uh, many historians view him as the most important thinker uh, between Pope Gregory in um, 604 and Charlemagne in 800. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church is going to recognize him not only as a saint, but as a doctor of the church, which is a little bit of a higher, well, it's a more exclusive club in that sense. There's about 40 of them, no one else from uh, who's English. The doctors are those who all their writings are sort of uh, viewed not as necessarily orthodox uh, teachings, but, but basically in line, completely in line with the Catholic Church. Um, he is, um, he's going to be hailed uh, as, as one of the uh, greatest Brits of all time. There was a survey done um, 25 years ago in which uh, the English, the Brits were asked to vote on the most important uh, British citizen in the last thousand years. And the winner, Winston Churchill. But in the BBC documentary that I saw on Bede, uh, the, the commentator said, had they done this a thousand years earlier, it would have been uh, Bede who would have won this. Uh, I don't know, I wasn't around then, but uh, I will trust the BBC on that. So, I want to use Bede, uh, I mean, he's significant in his own right, but I want to use Bede to, to pivot and to talk about the life of the mind. And I realize that this might surprise you. Uh, you may, at this point, have been surprised a couple times when I am limiting right, 2,000 years of church history. I said, these are, we're going to look at the 100 most important things. And I come out with this uh, obscure British monk uh, and the life of the mind. And you might say, you know, when I think of the Christian faith, I don't necessarily think of the life of the mind. Um, today, there are, there are many who sort of dismiss Christians as people who are not particularly um, thoughtful or uh, rigorously intellectual. So I, I get this. I mean, there are times when I am discouraged by the, the state of the church as it relates to the life of the mind. Um, and it's worth noting that there are some who, um, who line up against the life of the mind in the church. So um, let me note that there are Christians who are understandably leery of, say, higher education. I mean, this, some of this grows out of 19th century uh, higher criticism, which is going to come out of Germany, and it's going to be uh, there's going to be a move away from studying theology towards studying religion. Very, very different things. So theology is sort of looking at the Bible and trying to learn about God. Religion is sort of the study, almost more of an anthropological study of people's beliefs and what that, uh, how that shapes them. But coming out of religion departments, you're going to have uh, critical theories 
uh, of the Bible and are going to dismiss. A lot of these things have been undone in the last um, 50 or 60 years, but there's going to be a lot of reason, a lot of people questioning the validity uh, of, of the reliability of the Bible and dismissing a lot of things. And that's going to give rise in the, in the early 20th century to a, a pushback. And so this will be called the rise of fundamentalism, which is a, a, a distinct thing in the early 1900s. And uh, it's complicated. We're going to look at it uh, uh, when we get to that point. But the, the fundamentalists uh, are going to withdraw from uh, higher education to some extent because they don't trust it. And so, um, look, this whole, there, there's a whole theological school called liberalism, which capitalizes the L. Liberalism is, the, the term is used to describe progressivism, uh, or the left, it's used to describe sort of classic liberalism, the political ideology that talks about, uh, you know, individual rights and, uh, and sort of often tied to free markets. But this is a different thing. This is, this is a theological movement that capitalizes the L and it, and it, it significantly undermines the credibility uh, of faith, in particular of Christian faith. And so there, there are people who are leery of the life of the mind. I get that. And we can't be naive when we understand some of the uh, academic uh, presuppositions against faith that have emerged in the 19th and 20th centuries. And uh, here, here's another example. So uh, I keep uh, trying to um, champion the Middle Ages. Uh, the Middle Ages are referred to as the Middle Ages. I mean, that's a, a recent term. Obviously, at the time people were living, they didn't say, I'm living in the middle. I mean, it seems like you're living at the end if that's when you're alive. Uh, but the Middle Ages... Um, they've got their problems, especially as we move out of the early Middle Ages and the high Middle Ages. As we move out of the high Middle Ages towards the later Middle Ages, there are issues and there is some corruption and there are some problems with the church. But, but part of what happens is that during the Middle Ages, this nearly thousand year period, the church is preeminent and revelation, the idea of, of of scripture and truth being communicated uh, by God to us is, is preeminent. So you can think of four sources of authority, four things that people base their beliefs on. Uh, reason, so life of the mind, logic, that kind of thing. And this is what's um, obviously very good and it's what's preeminent uh, in the enlightenment and in science and other things. You've got tradition. Uh, we believe something because our parents told us this or our elders told us this or this is the way it's always been. We might believe something because of our experience. Uh, or the fourth, we believe something because we believe it is revealed to us by a higher power. So think of Jesus as the highest revelation that a Christian would point to. He's the exact representation of God. Uh, the book of Hebrews gives us that. Um, but it, not just the Word of God incarnate, Jesus, but we've got the Word of God written in the Bible. And so uh, the Bible, and, and then later on, even more so, perhaps, um, tradition, uh, are all under the rubric of the church going to be prominent. And 
there are many that say, look, this whole period from the fall of Rome, when we had the Greek philosophers and, and reason was king, and then uh, until the Renaissance, when reason sort of returns and people during the Renaissance, they, they go back to the original sources. They're not interested in, the, in, in revelation. They're not interested in Christian truth claims. They're going to go back to the Greek philosophers and other things. So they're, they're going to write off everything that was in the middle and sort of discard it. So, um, look, this is a big discussion. It will keep bubbling up as we move along. Let me simply say, um, some of you may be surprised that I am, I am choosing to, ch to champion somebody like Bede, an intellectual, and the life of the mind in the church. Uh, and, and you might think that, uh, that's, that it's a reach. But in fact, um, <laughs> the fact that you think it's a reach is tragic because the church has in so many ways uh, been at the forefront of helpful thinking and the, the helpful thinking of the church, of people of faith, has shaped uh, the West in some very positive ways. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at four sort of historical epochs here. Let me just say before we even turn to those, you should at least acknowledge um, that the Bible is a book. And anybody who is going to esteem a book is going to have to esteem education, right? You have to esteem literacy. And so the, 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 the early church is going to follow in lockstep with the Jews who had a book, right? The Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And so the Jews, the synagogues were places where people learned to read. It's a, it's a highly uh, literate culture when it is working well. And so um, the Bible is a book, so obviously that is going to elevate the life of the mind. And then the book itself is going to tell us uh, that, that, that we are to value, uh, we are to value right thinking. Um, it's going to celebrate the mind, and, and one of the major categories of the Old Testament is going to be wisdom literature and uh, we're told to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, we're told to be, off, to be ready to offer an explanation for the hope that is within us, an, an apology, a reasoned, thoughtful uh, presentation of the gospel. The Bible makes rational arguments for faith. We see Paul is a very educated person. We see Peter, who's not uh, formally trained, is going to grow uh, and the, the, the stuff that Peter says and does later in his life reflect that he was clearly engaged in the life of the mind and growing and becoming much more thoughtful than he had been early on. So we, we've got sort of the Bible. And then I'll, I'll just throw out there, I, I love this line by Dallas Willard where he says that um, Jesus is the smartest person who ever lived. And uh, Willard makes a point of noting, he's not saying that Jesus is the wisest person who ever lived. People would, would agree with that and wouldn't be necessarily shocked by that statement. But he's going out of his way to say Jesus is the smartest. And most people think, who's the smartest? Well, the pecking order sort of goes scientists, especially those with the Nobel Prize, and then uh, maybe, so you got, you got Einstein and you got those folks, then you got... Um, Maybe great writers. I don't know whether you're going to, you know, go with Dostoevsky or Dante, or and then you, you come down. You got philosophers. You got Socrates and Plato and Descartes. Um, but 
Most people are not putting Jesus at the top of this list. But uh, the, the Christian play would be, look, Jesus is he's eternal. He's had a lot of time to learn anything he didn't know. But we're saying he's God. He's omniscient. Uh, he speaks everything into existence. He's, he's the master of the molecules. He's, he is, uh, he's going to start a movie. He's going to be, he's not just going to be book smart. He's going to be really, really uh, wicked smart and able to start to pick people that are going to launch this movement that is going to continue and go. Um, I, I could, I could head down this path. It's a little bit more theological than his, historical, and I'm trying to focus on the history here. So let me, let me just mention four big reasons that we celebrate the Christian life of faith. The first thing is um, to just, and we've already noted in, in lectures on, um, on Patrick and Benedict, but the church helped pull Europe out of the Dark Ages, right? The Irish saved civilization. And this, this happened not simply by ongoing efforts to share the gospel with the barbarians and to sort of, you know, see them come to faith and stop being quite so much barbarians. Uh, but it also happened because of the influence uh, of the monasteries that were, that were islands, not just of, of cooperation and of, of health and grace uh, and, and places of fair trading and other things, but, but the monasteries were also centers of culture and centers of learning. They were probably less spiritual retreat centers, as, as you may be thinking, and, um, and more sort of places of education and uh, centers of the arts and scholarship. So much revolved around their focus on books. They copied them, not just the Bible. I mean, that was preeminently what they were copying. And, and of course, they loved the Bible, and, and they, they, was, they made these elaborate uh, artistic designs. Think of the Book of Kells. Uh, they, you know, the, these retreat centers were sort of artistic communities in one sense, and so there was some of that going on. They were not just copying books, uh, the Bible. They were copying other books. They were copying the great books of Western civilization, and they were adding to them as they were copying them. Of course, obviously, in-depth studying them, and they were they would add to them. And then they realized the need to not just um, be copying them, but to but to introduce them to other people, which meant that they had to, tr to teach people, not just kids like Bede, who was there, but the other people living in the community. And so, um, so we have, let's just, again, let's just acknowledge, Bede is the, the launching pad here. Bede, a preeminent scholar, celebrated by the Brits as one of their most important people, is, is an academic, he is a Christian, he is a monk, and it's, it's because the church is helping carry the water here. Second thing we could do is we could look at the reformers, uh, most of whom were scholars. Now, by reformers, I'm thinking about Martin Luther, John Calvin, the people of that era. So this is going to be the 1500s. Luther nails his 95 theses to the door at the Wittenberg Castle uh, in, uh, on October 31st, 1517, so 500 years ago. But Luther is a scholar, right? A, uh, he's got a, a doctorate. Calvin is an attorney. He's, and then he becomes a, a rigorous theologian. And, uh, and these are people who are leaders of the church, but they're also leading in education. So Luther is going to translate the Bible into German and teach people because he wants everybody to read the Bible. He's going to start schools. 
Calvin is going to start in Geneva. He's going to start a school. He's going to personally go door-to-door raising money for this. He's going to design the curriculum. Uh, and it's not just you know theology and the Bible. It's also going to be philosophy. It's going to be science. And uh, when he starts his school, his 900 students the first year, and it will eventually grow uh, to become a college. And so we see that uh, that... There is a lot that goes on like this. The the reformers are people who care deeply about good thinking. A third historical epoch that I'll note is the rise of science. And here, perhaps in particular, people think, well, faith and science uh, are at odds. Um, No. No, look. Science gets gets launched. There's usually three things I try and point out when, when I hear this. First of all, science is launched out of a Christian worldview. It's not launched out of, a, of, a, of an Islamic worldview. It's not launched out of a pagan worldview. It's, it's launched out of a world that uh, of a worldview, a starting set of assumptions that said the world was created by an orderly God, and it is ordered. It can be studied. And in fact, it is, it is one of the two books that God has given us. He's given us a supernatural revelation, the Bible. He's given us natural revelation. We can learn about God. I mean, this is part of the impetus for a lot of early scientists. We can learn about God, about the creator by studying the creation. And so, um, uh, we see that, that Science grows out of a Christian worldview. Scientific revolution, 1300 to 1700. It grows out of a, uh, launched out of a Christian worldview. The second point I make here is that a lot of scientists, uh, are Christians. And, uh, I'm thinking of, uh, Copernicus, the 15th century astronomer who is going to sort of advance the heliocentric idea that the, you know, the sun is the center of the solar system, not the, not the earth. Blaise Pascal, the Frenchman uh, who does all this work in math and, and, uh, and probability, and he also will write profound in, in, introspective works of uh, theology. His Pensees is an example. Kepler, Newton, uh, Mendel, George Washington Carver. You can go on. I remember taking a tour, a uh, walking tour of Cambridge University over in, in England, and it was, it was hosted by a church. If you, if you make it to Cambridge Sunday afternoon, you gotta do this tour. Uh, and they're just taking you around. It's not like, it's not a Christian tour, but you're just learning about all these great professors who have been at Cambridge down through the last, you know, 1100 years or whatever. And so many of them were people of deep, Piety and faith and love for Christ, and uh, it's it's fascinating. The third thing I'll, I'll say is that uh, a lot of times people say, "Well, the church uh, was lined up against uh, against science." So uh, the, the 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 classic illustration is the you know the the persecution of Galileo for arguing that the uh, the Earth was not the center of the world, advancing the Copernican. You, he gets in all kinds of trouble, excommunicated or whatever. Well, so um, it's worth reading about what actually happened. So uh, Galileo, by the way, he's, he's paid to do his research by the church. He's working for the church. His theory is not, it's, it, it's not, I mean, it had been advanced before that. 
And he's not in trouble uh, for advancing the theory. He's in trouble in part for claiming that the theory is fact. And some of that is he really um, sort of goes out of his way to thumb the nose of the Pope, which was not a good idea at the time. And uh, he's, not, he's not tortured. He's not subject to you know, the, uh, the torture of the Inquisition. Uh, his penalty is relatively light. Um, so there, it's, there's just a little bit of a different story there. So I just want to say um, that it's important to understand that, that the church has, while it does, move slowly and get disrupted by some of the advances in science and technology and other things. Um, it has been much more uh, of an advocate for the life of the mind than you might think. And then the, the last thing I'll, I'll point out here is the whole... Um, advocacy of education in general and higher education in particular. Um, this is important and fascinating enough. I, I think I'll do a supplemental lecture on um, higher education and, and how it is pretty specifically a Christian project. So uh, you, some of this, I mean, higher education in one sense starts with the Greeks and you're going to have some early uh, gatherings uh, in, in France, and, and, and some of this is going to be much more of a Greek academy. But by the time the church gets a hold of it, uh, it is going to take it in huge directions. And the easiest way to point this out is just to look at uh, higher education in the United States, which is was unabashedly a Christian endeavor uh, from the beginning. So consider Harvard, founded in 1636, it's the first college in the New World, and for 60 years, it's the only college. And it was founded uh, to train pastors, who used to be the most educated person in the room almost always. But they wanted, uh, they started a college in order to train pastors, so they had educated clergy for their churches in the New World. And their, their motto, <laughs> their early motto was, uh, in Christi Glorum, right, in Christ Glorified. Uh, and, and the word on the shield was veritas, which wasn't an abstract truth, but it was grounded. That veritas was understood to be truth grounded in Jesus Christ. And uh, John Harvard, who made the bequest to start the school, says, writes this in the bequest. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main ends of his life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and to lay Christ in the bottom of the, as the only foundation of knowledge and learning, and to see the Lord as the giver of all wisdom. Let everyone seriously set himself by prayer and secret to see Christ as Lord and Master. Okay. Uh, initially, like all you can study at these schools is the Bible, uh, a little Greek and Latin. If you're really radical, maybe some calculus. Uh, this is going to be the case while all these first schools get started. William and Mary, Yale, Princeton, Brown. Uh, the University of Pennsylvania is the exception started by Ben Franklin. But even then, Whitfield, the, the famous evangelist, is in on starting this school. So um, when you read about these, you see education as being understood as being a profoundly important thing. The life of the mind is being so uh, important. So um, look, Obviously, things have changed at universities over the last, um, you know, um, well, last four or five hundred years. Uh, again, I have a lot more that could be, perhaps should be said about this, so we'll pick it up in a different lecture. I simply want to say here in, in lecture 20 
Uh, I want you to understand that the life of the mind is a big part of faith. And the church has been an engine behind uh, the life of the mind and reason and education and literacy uh, from the very beginning. And it sure, certainly has had a profound impact on shaping the West in that way. Well, I hope that's helpful. Um, perhaps you have more to learn about learning, um, its importance in the church and, its, and the church's commitment to it. The next lecture uh, is going to be on the Emperor Charlemagne, who was uh, this ninth century um, Frankish German uh, leader who's going to unify Europe and then have himself declared, um, I think on Christmas Day, 800, he's going to have himself declared the Holy Roman Emperor. Myths suggest that he was eight feet tall, that he could crush horseshoes in his hands. Uh, you'll have to come back and see if those things are true, but that will be episode 21.